turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read uh, verses 1 to 13. Let us hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let us pray. Father, our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth. So we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds, conform our wills, and stir our affections for your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, the opening words of this famous chapter in Isaiah strike an ominous tone. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He was like, if I can be British for a moment, he was like Her Majesty the Queen. He was one of the longest reigning monarchs in the Davidic dynasty. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that he was a godly man who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord blessed him. 
He had victories in battles over the Philistines and other nations. He strengthened the defense of Jerusalem with towers and uh, reinforced the city walls. He expanded Judah's agricultural productivity. He restored Judah's military power close to what it was in David's day. Uzziah was a great king, a beloved king, but his life did not end well. He became proud and presumptuous. On one occasion, he entered the temple to offer incense, something that he knew only the priest should do. And when the priests confronted him, he began screaming at them in a rage, only to find leprosy breaking out on his scalp. And for the last 10 years of his life, he lived in a separate house as a leper until his death in 740 BC. And in that moment of his death, In the moment of national mourning, Isaiah goes to the temple, presumably looking for some consolation because he had known King Uzziah personally. Isaiah was not like the other prophets who were generally from working class backgrounds. Isaiah was a man of nobility, a king, a prophet in the king's courts. He was like the queen's chaplain. He was like chaplain to the president of America. He had been at the king's dinner table for the banquets. He'd been in the king's courtroom. He'd walked the corridors of the king's palace. He was a man in the know of personal acquaintance with this great king-come-tragic leper. But his world was now falling apart because his beloved Uzziah was dead. The great Uzziah, the beloved Uzziah, was dead. The nation and the people had entered into a time of great uncertainty and instability. Assyria was growing in power and invading other lands. There was a crisis in sovereignty. It's not dissimilar to other nations who experienced this at different times in their history. You just need to have a transition of leadership or some controversy about the leader come out. And what happens? There's this fear of uncertainty, of instability in the nation. I see even uh, in the last day or so, we're hearing calls of impeachment on President Trump. Whether you like him or not, it looks like there's a period of uncertainty, instability, a, a crisis of sovereignty. But it's not just national that Isaiah feels. Uh, a crisis here. It's also personal. Every week uh, he would have felt this in his own life on a personal level. And it's the same for us. We can experience things that bring uncertainty and instability into our lives. Whoever we are, whatever age or stage of life, life can throw things at us that unsettle us, that destabilize us. This tragic news about one of our children or the shocking diagnosis of cancer by the doctor. Whatever it is, it can unsettle us, unstable us. And if some of those things are completely out of our control, then we really do feel like the bottom of our world has just fallen away. The king is dead because we are not kings and queens of our own lives. We cannot control these things. 
there is a crisis of sovereignty in our lives sometimes. And that's exactly what Isaiah experienced. At a national level, the king was dead in the year that King Uzziah died. And at a personal level, he had lost his beloved king. And as he lies dead, he realizes that he's not in control. And who will be in control? Who will take Uzziah's throne? And through this experience of uncertainty and instability, through this experience of a crisis of sovereignty, Isaiah learned four things that he needed to know. Four things that are relevant for our lives. What Isaiah saw in the temple is incredibly practical for our own Christian lives in God's kingdom as we serve him. Here's the first thing we need in moments of uncertainty or instability and crises of sovereignty. Number one, we need to see the king's holiness. We need to see the king's holiness. Verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now these opening words of chapter 6 are surprising. Not because Uzziah had died suddenly. As I said earlier, for the last 10 years of his life, he lingered as a leper. So his death is not that surprising. The surprise is who Isaiah mentions next. We'd expect him to say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Jotham, Uzziah's son, sitting on a throne. In other words, the king is dead. Long live the king. That's what happens in the transition from one king to another. The newspaper headlines in 1952 in Great Britain, when King George VI died, were, the king is dead. Long live the queen. And one day in our own lifetime, people in the UK will hear the words, the queen is dead. Long live the king. It's a saying that is meant to stop uncertainty, to steve instability, to solve the crisis of sovereignty. The king is dead. Long live the king, because we've got another king, the son of the king. And so we would expect here to hear of Jotham sitting on the throne. A king on a throne after a king is dead. That's what we expect to see. It's what Isaiah saw, only it's not Jotham on the throne. It's the Lord on the throne. The king is dead. Long live the king. This is what Isaiah needed to see in the midst of uncertainty and instability and the crisis of sovereignty. Not Jotham on the throne, but the Lord on the throne. It's what we need to see at any point in a nation's history, at any point in our personal lives, we need to see the Lord on his throne. And look what Isaiah sees. The Lord seated on a throne. He's reigning. The Lord high and lifted up. He's exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, there's a sense in which Isaiah is saying that he saw the Lord but he was so highly exalted, 
so spectacularly immense that he could only describe the fringe of what he was wearing, the edge of what he was wearing. He couldn't get any closer. When Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1952, she walked into Westminster Assembly. She walked past her throne. She knelt at the altar that said on the altar, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. She said a private prayer. She got up. She sat in her throne. And officials came and stood right beside her. She wore a beautiful white royal dress with a long train. But her beauty and presence and dress was not so immense that as she sat on her throne, no one could get near her. Look it up on YouTube. You'll see her sitting there with these men either side of her. They could touch her if they wanted. Her train was big and long, but it didn't fill Westminster Abbey. But not so God in his temple. In the inner sanctum of God, there is no room for a person to get close. He is so highly exalted, so spectacularly immense, that you can only begin to describe the fringe of his robe, the edge of his majesty. And this is made clear by how the creatures in his presence conduct themselves. The seraphim in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now these seraphim are fiery creatures, most probably angels, and perhaps they get their fiery appearance because they glimmer in the light of God himself who is light. And notice how uh, or what they are. They are all wings and they are all voice. Six wings which convey service. They are at God's beck and call. They stand above him, flying, waiting for his command. But they only use two wings to fly. Do you see that? With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. The covering of the face shows that God is too awesome to behold. The covering of the feet shows that God is too awesome to approach. They are there in the inner sanctum of God's presence, but they cannot look upon God. They are present in the very presence of God, but they cannot approach him. And that is surprising because these are not fallen angels. These are unfallen angels. They don't have a taint of sin on them and they still cannot approach God. Their conduct underscores their creatureliness, and it uh, spotlights the Lord's creatorliness, to make up a word. However, there is one thing that they can do. They cannot approach, they cannot look, but they can sing. And what they sing is a kind of antiphonal song that highlights the king's uniqueness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if I can take you back to your school days, um, 
Remember in English you were taught there are different ways you can emphasize a word. You can put italics uh, under it. You can underline it. You can make it bold. Uh, you can uh, capitalize it. Well, in Hebrew, uh, there are no such ways to emphasize a word. Rather, what they use is repetition. Twice if it was important, thrice if it was superlative. And here is a super superlative. The king is holy, holy, holy. No other attribute in the whole Bible, uh, of, no other attribute of God is ever described like this in the Bible. The Bible never says love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. Just, just, just is the Lord of hosts. It only ever says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But what does that actually mean? Well, the word holy comes from the verb to set apart. And so some think it means God is set apart. But in the Old Testament, a bronze basin could be set apart. It could be holy. And I don't think the angels are singing, set apart. Set apart. Set apart is the Lord of hosts. You could sing that to a bronze basin if you wanted. Because it was holy. So what do the seraphim mean when they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, uh, when they speak of God's holiness here, they are speaking of his otherness. His otherness. He is other than we are. Martin Luther put it like this, let God be God. What the seraphim are singing is, God is God. God is God. God is God. The holiness of God involves the godness of God, which is wholly other than what we are, which is wholly other than what they are. It's why they cannot look upon him. It's why they cannot approach him. He is totally and utterly other than they are. And it's all that they can sing back and forth to one another, back and forth, because there is no other language to describe what they are seeing in this inner sanctum of God. It's like reap a cheap on the voyage of the dawn treader who sails to the end of the world. And the seraphim have reached the end of the world's ocean of language like the train of God's robe. They only can describe the edge of it. And Isaiah sees God's otherness, God's godness. That is what they are singing. And it is expressed in two ways here, his otherness, his godness. In verses 1 and 2, we see the king's holiness, his otherness, his godness, involves his majesty. The king is on a throne, high and lifted up. He is unbeholdable. He is unapproachable. In other words, what God sets apart, what sorry, what sets God apart as totally different, utterly unique, wholly other, is his awesome majesty. He is transcendent. He is above all things. He is distinct from all things. That's the first way Isaiah sees God's holiness. 
his otherness, his majestic holiness. But there's also his moral holiness, his moral purity. Just glance down to verse 5. In God's presence, Isaiah feels sinful, which means God is the complete opposite of that. God is pure. He is righteous in all things and therefore distinct from all people. So these are the two ways in which Isaiah sees the king's holiness. It's not just his purity, because the seraphim haven't fallen. They haven't sinned, and they cannot approach him. They cannot look at him. So it is the majesty of God in his holiness. But it is also the morality of God in his holiness, the purity of God that Isaiah sees. His majesty and his purity, his transcendence and his righteousness. And the seraphim make clear that God's majestic and moral holiness is not restricted to this temple, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, he is no domestic deity, no regional regis, no local lord, no state-restricted sovereign. He is the king of holiness over the whole world because all the world is full of his transcendent majesty and his moral purity. There's the great story told of King Louis XIV of France at his funeral. He organized his own funeral such that he was carried in in a casket, in a coffin, and the only light lighting Notre Dame Cathedral that day was a single candle burning at the foot of his coffin. Here was this egotistic king, the sun king as he was known, who even in his death wanted everyone to be focused on him and his greatness. Well, Massillon, the preacher that day, rose to give the funeral oration. And as he walked past the casket, he leant forward and blew out the candle. And out of the darkness, the people heard these opening words, only God is great. Only God is great. And that is what Isaiah sees. When the great Uzziah is dead, no, only God is great. Only God is great. It's what we need to see when the king is dead, when the queen dies, when a president is removed or is, uh, another president is elected, in the midst of uncertainty, instability, and a crisis of sovereignty, we need to see the Lord on his throne. And we need to see his majesty. Can you hear the angels singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There is something else that we need. We first need to see the king's holiness. And second, we need to feel our own sinfulness. We need to feel our own sinfulness. Verses 4 and 5. 
when you are confronted with God himself, you never come away unchanged or unmoved. You can't, not even the temple comes away unchanged here. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Inert, inanimate bricks shaking at the sound of the song of the seraphim. Shaking at the sound of the voice of God. And to the sight and the sound is added the smell, perhaps the smell of incense from the altar of incense. The smoke was meant to convey that the naked human eye could not look upon God. I love that line in holy, holy, holy. Um, Though the eye of sinful man your glory may not see. That's what this smoke is showing us. You cannot look upon this Isaiah. Again, we're back to that earlier point. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and yet he only describes the fringe of his robe. He sees the Lord in his temple, and yet the smoke is rising. He sees, but he doesn't really see. And what becomes blindingly obvious to Isaiah now is that he cannot approach. The foundations of the doorways are shaking, so there's no way to get in to the inner sanctum. He's been standing in the doorway watching all of this. And he also can't sing because he is a man of unclean lips. The seraphim can't look. They can't approach, but they can sing. Isaiah can't look. He can't approach. And he cannot sing. Why? Because his lips are unclean. He is drawn to the sight of God on his throne. He's drawn to the singing of the seraphim. But now he is repelled by it all. Verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. Today, uh, some of our young people uh, like to take lovely old ancient words and popularize them like awesome. Everything is awesome. Okay? It used to be that that was a description reserved only for God. But I've never heard any young people say, woe is me. This is a word that has dropped out of our language today. Who says woe anymore? Well, someone who's been in the presence of a thrice holy God. The word is tied in the Old Testament to the curses. It's the opposite of blessed. Isaiah realizes he's cursed. He's doomed. He's lost. And he can only say woe after he's experienced the wow. He first is wowed by God. And then he is woed about his own sin. And he says that he's lost. Woe is me, for I am lost. The word lost comes from the word to be silenced, which means he can't sing along. But it's more than just being lost for words. Lips reveal hearts. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Uh, sorry, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth 
speaks, said Jesus. And James said that the tongue corrupts the whole person. And the lostness that Isaiah feels here does not relate to a compartment of his life, his lips, his tongue, his speech. No, it relates to the whole of his life. He feels lost at the core of his being. He has come apart at the seams, if you like, what modern psychology would call disintegration. Here was a man who had it all together as the prophet of the king, and now he's falling to pieces. We all know the rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. And that's how Isaiah felt. In the presence of God, he was smashed. He was falling to pieces. He had lost his integrity at the core of his being. Here was a prophet called to rebuke the nation for their sinfulness, and he's got nothing to say to them because he's just like them. Woe is me, for I am lost. Why am I lost for words? Why am I lost at the center of my being? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It wasn't because he saw his sin that he fell apart. He did see his sin. It's because he saw his sin in the light of God. There's a difference between people who see their sin and feel a wee bit guilty. They never change because they have never seen their sin in the light of the King, the Lord of hosts. And the point is that Isaiah did not just intellectually admit he was a sinner here. He experientially crumbled as a sinner. Too much of our Christian uh, evangelism these days has lost this kind of experientialism. We call people to admit, to acknowledge their sin, but it's more than that. We should tell them to feel it, to feel the shame, to feel the guilt for it, because that is what sin does. It affects our psychological disposition when we are convicted of it in the presence of God. Otherwise, it is not a godly sorrow for sin. It is just an intellectual acknowledgement of sin. And that is what we need in moments of uncertainty, instability, in crises of sovereignty, whether it's national or personal. We need to see the king in his holiness. And having seen the king in his holiness, we need to feel our own sinfulness. We need to come to the end of ourselves. But the good news is God doesn't leave us there like Humpty Dumpty on the ground. If you remember earlier, I said that Isaiah has been called the Romans of the Old Testament, the gospel in the Old Testament. Well, verses 6 and 7 shows us the gospel here in Isaiah. And that gives us our third thing that we see. We need to experience God's restoration we need to experience God's restoration, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now notice how passive Isaiah has become. He doesn't ask for help. He's lost for words. God sees he needs help and God sends a seraphim. God isn't mentioned actually, but he doesn't need to be because seraphim don't act on their own. The winged angels hover above God waiting for his beck and call, waiting to serve. And so when a seraphim begins to fly to the altar, he has been sent by the Lord himself to that altar. And here he is sent to restore Isaiah. The angel flies to the altar, takes a coal from it. The altar of sacrifice in the courtyard and the altar of incense in the holy place had burning coals on them, used to provide atonement to burn the sacrifice. Well, the angel uh, takes the coal from the altar. But notice the fiery angel who reflects the light of God himself, this unfallen angel, cannot personally touch the coals. It's too white hot, too holy, and he needs a pair of tongs. Angels cannot handle atonement things. They can only apply from a distance. They can only, says Peter, peer in with interest and intrigue. And the angel applies this atoning work with a pair of tongs to the very place where Isaiah felt his sin most, his lips. It's the most sensitive part of the body. Have you ever bit your lip? Yeah, sore, isn't it? You sort of wince a bit. Well, can you imagine taking a burning coal from your winter fire or your barbecue and putting it on your lip? It would hurt. It would burn. But it's necessary in the case of Isaiah because this is what takes away his guilt and covers his sin at the very point where he feels it so that he can be a spokesperson for God. Because think about the lips for Isaiah. He's a prophet. He needs cleansed in his ministry. And the order is important. Sin must be covered. Guilt must be taken away before he can be reintegrated as a person. See, this is what's wrong with modern psychology. It tries to reintegrate a person without any reference to sin or guilt. That's why it only ever does a superficial job. But God's atoning work is the proper reintegration of a person in their whole being because it begins at the core of the problem, sin and guilt, before moving to the restoration of the person's faculties. In Isaiah's case, it was his lips. He was a prophet, a mouthpiece. And if he was going to serve in God's kingdom, then he needed God's cleansing at the very place of his service, his mouth, his lips. Isaiah may have felt like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses, all the king's men, couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. But the king could. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't. But the king could. And that's what the king does for Isaiah. And when he does put him back together again through the atoning work from this sacrifice on the altar by this burning coal, God then gives him his voice back. 
notice it only comes about by a king high on a throne who is high and lifted up, providing atonement from an altar of sacrifice. Later in Isaiah, we read of Judah's king, the suffering servant, being high and lifted up. And then what happens? He is then humiliated, stricken and afflicted, despised and rejected. And in that despising and rejection by God primarily, not just man, he provides atonement. So in Isaiah 6, we have a king in heaven, high and lifted up, providing atonement from an altar of sacrifice. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we have a king on earth who is high and lifted up, providing atonement by the sacrifice of himself. And the New Testament brings these images of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 52 and 53 together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of heaven, high and lifted up, who leaves his throne to provide an atonement on an altar of sacrifice, the cross. And he is the suffering servant who on the cross is high and lifted up and through the sacrifice of his death provides atonement for sins. This is why John in his gospel says that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. Because Jesus fulfills Isaiah 6, he fulfills Isaiah 53, and in so doing, he reveals God's holiness to us. A holiness which not only exposes our sin, but have you ever thought of God's holiness atoning for your sin? We tend to think it's just the first one, don't we? God's holiness exposes that we're sinners. But it's both in this passage. It is God's holiness that exposes our sin and atones for our sin. At the cross, God punishes sin because he is holy and righteous and just, but he also forgives sin because he is holy love, holy gracious, holy merciful. The cross is the altar of sacrifice from which we receive God's forgiving touch on our lives, just at the very place in our lives where we need it. And in receiving that touch, he prepares us for service. Which brings us to the final point. We've seen if, uh, if we've seen the king of holiness, if we felt our own sinfulness and experienced God's restoration, then finally we need to give ourselves to God's mission. We need to give ourselves to God's mission, verses 8 to 13. In the first half of the chapter, is Isaiah's vision, and this half is Isaiah's commission. But that's probably, or sorry, it's probably the biggest anticlimactic commissioning service you could ever attend, even though God speaks for the first time in this section. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds willingly, here I am, send me. But look at his calling. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Imagine having that as your ordination sermon as you get inaugurated at a church 
Now, some people try to soften these words uh, and say they don't really mean what they sound like, um, but there's no way around it. Isaiah's ministry was a ministry of hardening that led to judgment. Even Isaiah is somewhat puzzled by it, so he asks for an end point. Then I said, how long, O Lord? Okay, Lord, so I'm going to go, I'm going to preach, I'm going to harden their hearts, it's going to lead to judgment. Okay, but like how long is that going to go on for? A Sunday? A week? A month? A year? How long, O Lord? To which God replies, do it until judgment falls, verse 11, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, you are to preach Isaiah until the exile happens. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth tree or an oak tree whose stump remains when it is felled. In other words, Isaiah's ministry is one of bringing about the inevitable judgment of God on his people which will first be seen by foreign invasion from Assyria, taking away the north, Babylon, taking away the south into exile. And God wants Isaiah's preaching to harden the heart, to deafen the ear, to blind the eye, so that judgment will fall. It was the same with Jesus' ministry. He taught in parables so that people would not repent but continue to be blind and deaf and unrepentant. And Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, to back up why he's teaching in parables. His preaching was there to harden hearts. But do you remember what I said was the two-beat rhythm of Isaiah? Judgment, salvation. Judgment is never the last word in the Bible. Isaiah, you are to do this until judgment falls, yes, but after judgment, salvation. And there was evening, and then there was morning. After darkness, light. After judgment, salvation. Because this judgment was not an end in itself, but a means to another end, salvation. And Jesus' parables hardened the hearts of people and the religious leaders so that it eventually led to the inevitable judgment on himself so that they crucified him. But was that the end? No. After judgment, salvation. This was to be Isaiah's ministry. He was to bring about the judgment, but a judgment that would end in salvation. And that's the note that Isaiah chapter 6 ends on. You see, after the speech of God, it's like Isaiah puts a one-line interpretation. The holy seed is its stump. The image, again, notice the image, the picture that Isaiah gives of Judah and Jerusalem being burned, being cut down like a tree that you cut down but notice what he does. He says, the stump remains. And then he says, the holy seed is its stump. A few months ago, uh, we moved into our home. And one of, the things, one of the first things we did was we cut down this horrible looking bush. And my 
father very kindly came and he took a saw and he just cut the whole thing down. But it left um, bits of the trunk of this big sort of tree about this high. And then we went away to the UK for two months. And when we came back, what, lo and behold, what did I find? Not withering stumps, but shoots all over this thing. When you want to destroy a tree completely, you have to poison the stump. You have to cut up the stump and get an axe and pull it out of the ground. But when you just leave the stump, what happens? A little shoot begins to grow. And that's what we'll see tomorrow morning in Isaiah 11. The holy seed is its stump. If you just leave a stump, you will eventually get another tree. And what it's saying here is there will be a holy seed, a few survivors, a remnant after the judgment falls on Judah going into exile. In fact, Isaiah will tell us later on it will be one remnant, one survivor, the suffering servant, who himself will be saved through judgment for the transformation of the world. And in his judgment, God leaves one holy seed hanging on a cross. And from that bloody cross, from that stump, a shoot begins to spring. And as we'll see tomorrow, that single shoot of that stump transforms the whole world. Because the last word of the gospel is not judgment. It is salvation. The gospel is the story of how God saves his people through judgment for the transformation of the world which means being part of God's mission is well worth our time and commitment because God is saving a people for himself through judgment for the transformation of the world. For each of us, our involvement in that proclamation may be different. Some of us will go like Isaiah. We will be the frontline preachers and ministers. For others, it will be that we stay and we pray and we give and we serve in our local church but we are all involved in God's mission. And if we've seen the King in His holiness, if we have felt the sinfulness of our sin, if we have experienced His restoring, atoning grace in our lives, what else would you want to do with your life? Let us pray. Father, you are the God of grace and mercy. You're the God of justice and righteousness. And all of these things contribute to your holiness, your otherness. And we praise you, Father, for your holiness, seen here in this majestic passage where the seraphims fly before you, covering their face and their feet, a sign that you are so unapproachable. And they sing of your holiness. We pray, Father, that you would please give us an insight into that holiness, that we might feel our sin. We pray, Lord, that having seen your majesty and holiness, we would see your holiness in the cross, in providing a coal of atonement to touch our lives. We pray, Father, that having experienced that restoring grace, you would send us out into your kingdom, joyful, committed, earnest to bring this good news.
to those whom we meet. And we ask all of these things in Christ's strong name. Amen.